I'm Alan Cavana of Fox Sports, joined by David Smith of The Athletic. On this episode, a review of Kansas and a requiem for those we lost in the playoff, of course, breaking the straight up, breaking down the straight up driver swap of Stenhouse for Busher and the potential of a bad day at Martinsville. But first, as always, this is episode 40 of Positive Regression. This is the Dario Franchitti edition. Yes, you heard that correctly, that Dario Franchitti. If you don't know or don't remember, back in 2008, David, accomplished NASCAR, I mean, NASCAR, accomplished IndyCar driver, Dario Franchitti made the switch to NASCAR for Chip Ganassi Racing. And David, it was supposed to be the start of something beautiful. And by July of that season, the team was disbanded. Uh, Mario Andretti, he was not. Uh, <laughs> just... Just 10 races, Alan. That's all. Just 10. Uh, he was 35 years old. Uh, it was the 2008 season. He had a production and equal equipment rating of negative 0.3. He ranked 48th out of 53 drivers in peer that season. Who ranked worst? Do you ask? Uh, 51 year old Mike Skinner, 48 year old <laughs> Kyle Petty, 45 year old Michael Waldrip, and 24-year-old Regan Smith. They they ranked worse. Now, who ranked better? This is an interesting list. 52-year-old Bill Elliott ranked better. How about that? Mm. Awesome, Bill. Sam Hornish ranked better. Patrick Carpentier ranked better. Chad McCombie. Remember him? Chad wow. McCombie, more productive in the NASCARs than Dario Franchitti. How about that? Um, this was uh this was an interesting time, Alan. This was uh the the late 2000 influx of IndyCar drivers into NASCAR. I mean, it was an odd point. What What were your thoughts on that? It was. It was. It was just a, I don't know, to think back on the time of why, you know, why then, why now? I mean, certainly it had to do with NASCAR's popularity. Uh, this was right before the drop-off, right? I mean, right before the financial crisis and the downturn and just about everything. So you have to think, though, you, you think money, you think sponsorship, you think uh, all the spotlight and all the acclaim that can come with being on what, look, at least in America, certainly the top form of motorsports in America, if not the world, a huge attraction there, right? I mean, why not come and make it in NASCAR? The spotlight was there. The Jeff Gordons, the Jimmy Johnsons of the world, Tony Stewart. I mean, this is where the spotlight was. All right, bring your talent. Let's go make a name and make a whole bunch of money over in NASCAR. And then I don't think it was as easy as some thought. Maybe I'm, maybe that's a, a, an arrogant thing of me to say as a NASCAR fan to assume that these other drivers thought it would be easy or easier, but it certainly wasn't an easy transition for a lot of these guys. No, and you know, this is actually an era that I get asked a lot about. Uh, I was an agency scout during the height of the driver development period, which coincides with this era. But I should say that this isn't the kind of thing that killed grassroots development. Uh, I know when, when thinking back to that stellar Ganassi development crop, it was Juan Pablo Montoya and Dario Franchitti blamed for its dissolution, but this was a reaction, a band-aid for when teams didn't utilize grassroots racing properly. For all intents and purposes, this number 40 car should have been Brian Clausen's ride at Chip Ganassi Racing. That it wasn't was not Dario's fault. Uh, David Stremme and Reed Sorensen were keystones of that Ganassi driver development program. 
I personally liked Ryan Hemphill a lot, more so than his own team did, it turns out. But Stremi and Sorensen were their guys, and those two were also objectively abject failures for Ganassi. I mean no disrespect when I say that. Stremi and I get along. Sorensen and I get along. We've had a working relationship. And true story, I created his Twitter account. But the fact is, they didn't win. They didn't perform well at all. And this soured Chip Ganassi and his front office on the young driver route. And as such, they chose to funnel their catch-all funding to Dario Franchitti. Uh, remember the Guitar Hero sponsorship that mm-hmm. was on the car. That wasn't a sponsorship as much as a relationship with Target and a make good. They didn't have additional Target sponsorship. They just had the one. Dario was essentially unsponsored. That easily could have been Clausen. So that whole part, that was on Chip Ganassi, not on Dario Franchitti. But Alan, I think for many, the IndyCar infusion was either a short-sighted bid for immediate jolts. Uh, if you can remember, there was a time when it was believed there was a driver shortage. That was not true. It was just a lazy opinion. Uh, or this infusion was a stopgap to younger drivers, giving them more time to develop, and then they can come in and become stars. Among this crop, Juan Pablo Montoya hit the highest highs in terms of production. A.J. Allmendinger was the best over an extended period of time. But Fran Keedy and Hornish and Danica Patrick and Casey Mears and even Patrick Carpentier were not productive, at least not at the Cup Series level. And when you go for immediate gratification, a quick stopgap, this is what often happens. This represented the easy way out, only it didn't ever yield the desired results. I don't know, maybe Tony Stewart isn't a part of this group. He came much earlier, but outside of Montoya or Almondinger, I don't even know if this whole period was a success. I would, I would say no. And I'll admit to, I don't remember the exact particulars, but to quit and disband the team in the middle of the season tells you something about the effort and where they believed it could go. There was a point where Frankie was injured, I believe. So maybe that factored in a little bit, but to just start the experiment and quit it by July, that sounds in retrospect, it, it, it looks crazy to me. It does. And you think if this was a problem, uh, you know, pertaining to funding or what have you, wouldn't you have known that was coming down the <laughs> pipe? Or, I mean, maybe, maybe this was literally the last ditch effort to keep a program alive was to go get uh, an Indy 500 winner and see what he can do. But it was, uh, in hindsight, short-sighted and, as you brought up, didn't uh, didn't last too long. An interesting era, nonetheless. Dario Franchitti drove in NASCAR, and he drove the number 40. This is episode 40 of Positive Regression. Let's get started the way we've been doing it the last few weeks in the playoffs. Just a quick review of Kansas. Kansas, a good drama-filled race all the way until the final lap, plus the two overtimes. We lost Brad Keselowski. We gained Chase Elliott. At least he remained and worked himself in to sticking around in the playoff. And Denny Hamlin went out there and dominated, David. Dominated the race, the overtimes, the end of the race, was able to stay out front. What do you think this means? We we know he was a championship contender. But for me, him going out and winning this race, you know, there's a top four, you would say, I think. You know, Hamlin, Truex, Bush, throw Harvick in there. All of them kind of been ho-hum in the last round, I felt. And Hamlin goes out there 
and puts it on him and gets a checkered flag. To me, just that statement. I know there's some st- statistical things maybe and some uh, some numbers you can put behind it, but me just making that statement was big for me. You know, separating himself from those other three contenders w- was big for me. You said the magic word there, uh, that statement. You know, I watch a lot of other sports, uh, and a statement win is an overused term in analysis in other sports uh, to the point that it's lost all meaning. I'm looking at you, college football. <laughs> but in Hamlin's case at Kansas, calling it a statement win makes a lot of sense. For Hamlin, and to probably the same degree, Martin Truex, because he had the fastest car in this race, these were statements that said they are far more capable on the moderate 1.5-mile tracks then their speed for the entire year has indicated, and this is important if they want to be able to compete for a championship at Homestead. Earlier this year at Kansas, these guys ranked 17th and 20th wow. in central speed for the race. Last weekend, they ranked first and second. It huh. means that they've learned from the first time around. Now, keep in mind, Hamlin is with a new crew chief in Chris Gabehart. He returned to Kansas for the first time, for a second time with Gabehart. Truex was with an all-new team. They are now favorites if they get to Homestead. I'm sure this will affect betting odds. For me, Alan, Hamlin and Truex strike me as a tier one unto themselves as championship contenders if everything breaks their way in round three. Interesting to see that change over the course of a year. But uh, yeah, no, that was the, the takeaway from it. I mean, the speeds and all year, I mean, all year, if you've been listening to this podcast and you've been listening to David, you know, the tracks like the Las Vegas's of the world, like the Kansas's of the world, were at least be a little telling when it comes to looking toward Homestead. And we got a little bit of that out of the sun, uh, the race last Sunday. Part of that, you know, Denny Hamlin almost overlooked for his win because of what we saw Chase Elliott do right there at the end, the late race charge up to second. Turns out he didn't need to get the win to get uh, into the playoff, but needed every single one of those positions, certainly. Um, David, he took four tires. I was watching the restarts because of, you know, the work we've done together, watching which lanes he was in. Those last few restarts, he uh, excelled from the outside lane. He excelled from the inside lane and in retaining his positions and got up to second. What do you think of that late race charge? Elliott accomplished all of what he did on Sunday without having the fastest car in the race. He didn't even have the fastest car of the fourth and final quarter. That belonged to Eric Jones. And central speed caters to long run speed. That makes sense. There are more long runs than short runs on average. But, Alan, we talked about this last week. They did everything that we discussed. Elliott is a so-so restarter. At best, but the nine car, the nine team focused on a short run setup, and this was confirmed by Alan Gustafson in the TV interview late in the race, four tires under yellow, two under green. Gustafson made the four tire call under yellow that's become the go-to call in 2019. He makes that call last year. I don't believe he has the same success. It takes those with four tires a shorter amount of time to catch those with two in this new rule package. This was a well-crafted game plan that looks intelligent because the race broke in the manner on which they were betting. And that is as good as it gets, folks. You can't ask for more in a strategy. Perhaps uh, Chase Elliott's three wins this season were more memorable to his fans. I will argue this was the best race this year for Chase Elliott in the number nine team 
it was complete. It was smart. It accomplished the goal of getting him into the third round despite a daunting point deficit. Uh, they had to have one of Keselowski or Logano have bad days. Chase Elliott did not control his own destiny unless he won the race. That is very difficult to do. He came close, but none of that changes the notion that Elliott, Gustafson, the nine team executed to perfection. Yeah. And fortunately for nine team and the nine fans, the two car of Brad Keselowski did have a bad day, but not out of damage, not because he got caught up in a wreck. David, I was quick to text you because I did a Sirius XM radio uh, earlier this week, and I wanted to know before I hit the airwaves just how bad, put it in perspective, how bad the two car was. And you told me in central speed that the two teams showed up with the 17th fastest car in Kansas for a playoff race, for an elimination race, at a track that they'd won at earlier in the season, and it just blew my mind. 17th fastest car and again no little to no damage i mean no big accident uh just kind of inexplicable when you're looking at it from afar i'll get into what keselowski's done this season in our next segment but allow me to map out a typical keselowski race barring some unforeseen malady keselowski has the second best average starting spot this season but only one pole so we'll say that his initial track position is typically decent not to worry if it isn't, because he and crew chief Paul Wolf figure out ways to get faster as the race progresses. As a matter of fact, consider this. They rank third this season overall in central speed, but they rank first this season in fourth quarter speed. That is their calling card. They get faster as the race grows longer. Paul Wolf makes the necessary mid-race tweak, and Keselowski gets faster this time Wolf made that tweak and things got worse. This was an atypical day for the number two team. I believe they are one of the eight best teams in the series. And if everything played out accordingly, they'd be in the round of eight. But on this particular day, they tried doing what they always do well. And it went against them. You're right. It was inexplicable. Now, the narrative changes had Elliot not had as good of a race as he did. But unfortunately, all of it happened, happened. Yeah. So now there are uh, nits that can be picked with Keselowski's team. However, this one race should not act as an indictment. Uh, this was just a case of they completely missed the setup in the second half of the race, waiting for that tweak to happen, and it just it never came. A bad day to have a bad day, if you want to be cliche about it. We'll stick with the Kozlowski theme just for a second, because every time we go through a round, we kind of do a requiem for the four eliminated drivers. Those drivers, Brad Kozlowski, Alex Bowman, Clint Boyer, and of course, William Byron. David, we'll start with you. Brad Kozlowski, uh, you know, we'll go kind of go over season highlights and maybe something he could work on now that he is no longer in championship contention. What can he work on uh, to improve next year? Well... I'll ask you this, Alan. Would you rather have a car that ranks third in central speed like Keselowski's did this year, but only ranked first for a single race just once? Or would you rather your car rank fifth in central speed, but have a fastest car in six races? Oh, I'll, 
there's a smart answer to this, and I'm not smart enough to answer it. I like the first one because I know the fastest car in Central Speed only wins 40% of the time, so I don't need to have the fastest car. I just need to, you know, have one that is capable of winning, and if I have Brad Keselowski's talent, I don't mind the first scenario. Yeah, I don't think that there is a right answer here, but that the, the former was the plight of Keselowski. The latter was the 19 team of Martin Truex. So oh, they're, they're in a little bit, just in this one instance, they're in a little bit better standing. But to Keselowski's team, they're really good. It's the best Penske team, certainly the more consistent and reliable Penske team. Joey Logano's might have a higher ceiling, but the number two team ranks third right now in central speed. Keselowski is also uh, the highest ranked driver and peer among the Penske trio. Keselowski is an above par passer. He is an elite restarter from both grooves and ranks in the top five in production equal equipment rating. Over the course of 32 races, all of this is really good. It's not great, but it is really good. But their approach, this death by a thousand cuts doesn't play well in a playoff format. All the Penske teams have crests and troughs in speed. If you look at their central speeds dating back to the last three years, when they are at their fastest, they're good, but they're not series leaders. And when they're at their slowest, they bomb out of the playoffs at Kansas. And it isn't much of a shock. Uh, this wasn't one of the big three teams last year. It's not as if they dominated a portion of this season. What happened Sunday wasn't really a surprise. I wasn't shocked by it. So my fix here, Alan, I think might be universal to all of Penske, not just the number two team, but find ways to be consistently good. And by that, I mean multiple ways in which this team can succeed. If you consider the teams for Harvick and Bush and Truex and now Hamlin, what makes them good and consistent to a degree is that they can win races in a number of ways or have sustained success thanks to more than one reason. With the Penske teams, they seem to have a pretty awesome plan A, but that's it. <laughs> if, if plan A does not work, they have no more plans. Think about 2017, Joey Logano's win at Richmond, which was famously encumbered. That penalty neutralized their one mechanical trick of the season, and that was it. They didn't make the playoffs that year. There were no more tricks. So my fix here is to develop more tricks. The pit strategy designs by Penske crew chiefs are maddening. You've heard me harp about them, Alan. Sometimes they hit. The majority of the times they don't. Paul Wolf is a bottom four crew chief when it comes to position gain on green flag cycles. Well, don't be that guy. Don't call a race like Rodney Childers when you don't consistently have the brand of speed that Rodney Childers has. That's what bugs me here. There isn't much adapting going on. It's the same MO every week. And then another another fix, the ends of races. They're, they needed to be cleaned up last year. They still need cleaning up. Brad Keselowski's six crashes in red zone situations are the second most in the series, trailing only Ricky Stenhouse's seven, and Ricky Stenhouse lost his job. Hmm. This is a team that gets faster as races progress. That is probably Paul Wolf's strong suit, and Keselowski, at least positionally, in total, has made it a wash. So there are fixes in there. Call races that fit your current form. Capitalize on the thing that you do so well create more pathways to sustained success 
So early playoff exits like this don't happen. Yeah, second straight year, Brad Kozlowski will not be in the final eight looking for a title. Next up, uh, who was eliminated last Sunday in Kansas? Alex Bowman. Alex Bowman, look, had a great year. Uh, is obviously not over yet, but in terms of the title run, has had a great year. Uh, a huge year of improvement for Alex Bowman in that 88 in terms of his production numbers. Uh, his first win, obviously, this year in Chicago. He's doubled the number of top five runs already this season compared to last year. Uh, we've talked about his speed. Again, if you are a listener on this uh, podcast, Positive Regression, you know the speed we've talked about on the tracks like Kansas, like Chicago and Vegas. Uh, he has a crew chief that delivers him positions. That's all good stuff. And the fix for me is Alex Bowman needs to start taking advantage of it. He has a faster, much faster car this year than he did last year. And I think he needs to use it better. His passing numbers, David. Uh, Motorsports Analytics, your website and all the work you do, you break down the different types of tracks and um, the the passing numbers that, that each driver has to the different types of tracks. What, what they are delivering beyond what could be capable of their car, if you will. Basically, you're able to measure what the driver is delivering. At only one type of track does Alex Bowman have a positive surplus passing value, and that's tracks a mile to a mile, just under a mile and a half. Think like the Phoenixes, Dovers of the world. That's the only type of track that he is producing more or giving more positions, passing better than you would expect his car to. That's a bunch of other tracks that he is not doing that at, David. And with the speed he has, the crew chief he has, and the talent that he is showing, I think he just needs to improve his passing numbers a little bit if he wants to make that next step up and be this playoff driver again, contending for more wins and making it further in the playoff. Where is the season finale next year, Alan? Phoenix. Okay. So it's, it, it mm. is in his, it is in his wheelhouse. Yes. So I, I actually agree with you. If there, if at the very least he can double down on the mile and a half tracks, I don't know, uh, the depth of the strides that Hendrick Motorsports as an organization is going to make, but I know what the 88 team is good at right now and what seems to be in their control is speed on the mile and a half tracks. Make the strength stronger. Double down, clean up the passing. I'm with you. And I don't think it's far-fetched that this could be just this weird cockeyed playoff contender. I mean, he 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 doesn't have to be lights out good to compete for a championship, and that might be his best pathway to success. I kind of like that. All right. Alex Bowman, good year. Try again next year, but uh, you know, kudos to what he's done. Uh, next up, Clint Boyer. Clint Boyer came close, David, but he's out. No longer in the playoff. Made it to the round of 12, but not the round of eight. What does he need? It's easy and a little lazy to point at Clint Boyer and suggest that he's the biggest problem with this 14 team. As of right now, he is an above average producer for his age, an above par preferred groove restarter, ranked fourth in retention, actually, an above-par passer on all 1.5-mile tracks, an above-par passer on two-mile tracks, and has a disparity of nearly 13%, uh, suggesting he's underachieved with top 15 finishes relative to the percentage of time he's completed laps inside the top 15. So he does a number of things well, and this season probably should have seen better results. If he weren't 40, going on 41, 
I might suggest that he's a candidate for positive regression <laughs> in 2020, but I'll hold off on that because I don't know what his individual decline on the age curve will look like. Instead, I will say that since he's returning to Stuart Haas for next season, the team should take the opportunity to begin a rebuilding process. And it's a, it's really easy to tear down something that isn't very viable. This team barely made the playoffs. And maybe Boyer isn't going to be with them much longer, but the foundation can certainly be repaired or built right now. Mike Boogeravitz, a crew chief similar in position retention to Paul Wolf, uh, is there, but, but here his failings and this team's failings are more impactful because Boyer isn't as foolproof a passer or a restarter as Keselowski and the team isn't as fast. I realize this is a Stuart Haas team, but for the 14 team, the game planning needs to take the assumption that they aren't traditionally good. They are sometimes fast, but sometimes isn't elite, at least not my, by my definition. This needs to be a mistake-free unit. Booger Ravitz supplying positions when he can would be a nice change of pace. They lost 56 spots this season across green flag cycles on non-drafting ovals. And in situations where green flag cycles and the ends of stages coincided, they lost 82 positions. Mm. That is the most of any team in the series. The timing of their stops needs to change. The in-race decision-making needs to shift because... This team isn't good. They rank 12th in central speed this season. Score uh, points and results as if they're a borderline playoff team and call races as if their speed is unimpeachable. None of it makes sense, Alan. I don't <laughs> I don't give grades because that'd be very hot takey for my liking, but this team does not deserve a passing grade for 2019. And it's not entirely on the crew chief either. Boyer had some faults of his own. 17th most productive driver and the 12th fastest car is a huge factor in this team not achieving results that match the effort. And his crashing, the fourth highest crash rate among all drivers with six or more starts this season. That is not good. The fix here is to be aware of the team you are and treat the situation appropriately. Do not call races as if you are somehow a good race team. This combo is not a championship favorite. It likely will not be in 2020. So build the foundation now by being mistake-free and the areas within your control and everything that I just discussed is totally in the 14 teams control. That's not, that, I mean, that's not easy though for anybody. That's not easy for any human being to kind of recognize your faults and play up to them rather than aspire for bigger. But that's tough advice, David. Yeah, and, and there's there's the notion that if, oh, well, if this works for Rodney Childers and Adam Stevens, <laughs> we want to be as good as that team. So let's try to emulate what they do. But that doesn't really work uh, based on where, you at, uh, where you're at in the running order and what you need points-wise to move forward. So um, a good day or a good strategy for a crew chief is not universal across the field. Some of these teams need to take some harsh looks in the mirror and realize we're not those guys. We need to, we need to call races that are more befitting of where we are as a race team instead of where we want to be. I hope they are listening to positive regression. <laughs> Finally, uh, the fourth driver who will no longer be with us in the playoff, William Byron. William Byron made big strides this year, just in terms of results anyway. I mean, four top fives, 12 top tens and five poles. 
with Chad Knaus. Uh, if you remember way back to the beginning of the season, David predicted a lot of that speed would be there with this combination of both William Byron and Chad Knaus. And, and they delivered, frankly, especially in those qualifying and getting those uh, five poles. But the, the fix, look, I mean, he's a young driver. I think he made strides this year. Uh, he'll continue to do that. The fix really has to be is honestly just finishing better, David, because you mentioned that top 15 efficiency before with Clint Boyer. William Byron, one of the worst top 15 efficiency rates in the series at negative 10%. Again, what that means is when he's on the track, he is spending a lot of laps inside the top 15, but not finishing necessarily there as much as he should be. He's finishing outside the top 15 more than he's running inside of it. That's not what you can be doing when you have that type of speed and that type of talent and the type of uh, just opportunities that a guy like Chad Knaus is delivering to you. So we saw improvement this season, but David, if he starts improving his finishes better and really just finishing where he deserves to be in terms of where he is putting the car during the race, I think we'll see a lot of improvement next year. Yeah, so this past weekend at Kansas was just his fourth top five finish of the year. And I bet without looking that up, you didn't, uh, you wouldn't have expected it was that low of a number, but that's actually pretty remarkable that they were able to get this far in the playoffs with that number of top fives. I would say good things are on the horizon. There is a, on average, a third year leap that we see, uh, from full time drivers. And I think that's probably a subject we'll need to discuss on its own in a future episode, but, Byron will enter his third year in the Cup Series after spending uh, one year in Xfinity and one year in trucks. This is the longest he's ever been in, in one series, I believe. <laughs> so um, I would expect familiarity would be uh, a nice change of pace for him in 2020. Next up, let's analyze uh, an old-fashioned, and we'll call it a driver swap, David, because it wasn't a straight-up trade-for-trade, but in essence— Chris Busher moves over to Roush Fenway in the six car, and Ricky Stenhouse moves from Roush Fenway to JTG Racing to drive the 37. It's it's a driver swap. So <laughs> next year, different drivers in different places, and it'll be a str- and it'll be easy to compare the two because they'll be in the they're just swapping rides, which is not something we often see in the Cup Series. So let's break it down. Uh, David Roush Fenway made the surprising move to surprise a lot of us, including Ricky Stenhouse, and pull Chris Busher back into the fray. What does Roush Fenway uh, get out of this move? So Roush Fenway made this precise move for two reasons. One, because of Ryan Newman's success this season, making the playoffs despite a lack of speed, and because of the point padding by crew chief Scott Graves. And two, because the move was available via a contract option. Chris Busher with Trent Owens and JTG thrived using the same sort of strategic design. Owens was, uh, Owens was my number one pick in our crew chief draft for a reason. Roush Fenway saw an opportunity to land a driver that can work within the parameters that have allowed the organization to have its most successful season since, I don't know, the Carl Edwards era, maybe, I guess. Um, and when I wrote about this move for The Athletic, I mentioned that it felt to me like step one of a two-step change for the 17 team. Step two would involve either pre-existing crew chief Brian Patty changing the way that he calls races, which is not unheard of. I use Billy Scott 
uh, this year on behalf of Daniel Suarez as an example. But this is not something that can just be assumed. Roush has now said they've elected to bring in another crew chief, which is probably the more pragmatic approach here. They are essentially building a second team in the shape and identity of Ryan Newman's number 16. Busher allows them to do this. Stenhouse is less effective in pretty much every track position metric uh, than Busher. Uh, he does not. Uh, so that's a, it's, it's a, a wise decision. It's a conscious choice, uh, to grab a driver like Chris Busher that does the type of things he does to, uh, sort of double down on what you were doing really well. Yeah. And I looked at the production numbers and it's similar. They're close for both Busher and Stenhouse this season, but you get Busher at five years, uh, less in age, right? And a low and the crash frequency so much lower than Ricky Stenhouse is known for. So I, I can see why you can see why Roush wanted to make the move. Yeah, there's so there is already um, an immediate upgrade just in terms of uh, a little bit more um, track position cushion, but the crashing, as you mentioned, but it is also a long term um, upgrade as well, right? Like there's there is more upside because Busher is younger and I think it makes sense for a team that has made as many changes as Roush Fenway has over the last few years to take a shot on a different driver and see if it clicks. Now let's look at it from the other side. Why does JTG make this move? Again, it wasn't a trade. So, uh, you know, I, I'm trying to be nice about it, but this wasn't the, the first choice of JTG. In ter- they wanted Chris Busher, right? I mean, the, it was a surprise that Busher was no longer available. So you take Busher out of the running and then you are, have the pool of I guess you'd call them free agents or drivers to choose from, and they choose Ricky Stenhouse Jr. to fill the ride. Why does JTG make this move? I mean, we know Ricky Stenhouse Jr. is a cup winner. We know he is a veteran. Was he the best remaining free agent? Uh, why does JTG make this move? This is a good question. So they evaluated who is available and – probably correctly identified Stenhouse as the most productive driver within their grasp. And those last three words are very important. Daniel Suarez is in the process of extending his deal with Stuart Haas. He might've been the guy that would have trumped Stenhouse for me, but a world where Suarez passes on JTG to keep his ride alive at Stuart Haas Feels realistic. It's probably the world we're living in, yeah. right? So keep in mind, JTG racing has improved for sure, but it is not yet a wholesale destination. Even Roush Racing holds some prestige to a younger set of drivers. That kind of lore, though, is absent at JTG. And I went back and checked on this, Alan. Ricky Stenhouse is the first top 20 producer to sign with JTG Racing ever. Bobby Labonte was well past his prime. AJ Allmendinger was fresh off of a suspension. That's why he was available. Chris Busher was not the Chris Busher that we know now just yet. And Ryan Priest this season is a rookie. They have always bought low. Stenhouse ranked 20th in peer this season. He ranked 16th last year. He ranked 18th in 2017. That is fairly reliable, even given what we know about his crashing. He crashes more than any driver in NASCAR, but JTG is apparently willing to stomach that 
But look, here they are in a position they probably did not want to be in. They assumed Busher was returning, but they may do. And Stenhouse is the highest profile free agent they've ever landed. So ah, this might be a make lemonade out of lemons situation, Alan. I, I, I mean, I don't know, but I mean, it could have been a whole lot worse. All right. Yeah, well, that's at least that's something, right? They, they have their driver picked and they could start planning ahead. And, and speaking of planning ahead, your uh, your colleague at The Athletic, Jordan Bianchi, did a great piece about what it's like being, uh, I don't know if lame duck is the right situation. Is that the right term in this situation? But, you know, drivers who are no longer going to be with their team next year, what that's like, because when that happens, more often than not, teams start cutting off information. All those weekly meetings you start going, you've been going to throughout the entire year, throughout your entire run at an organization, you're asked not to go anymore because there is information shared, uh, whether it be from manufacturers or from engine people, what have you. And, you know, they don't want you walking out the door with the latest information. And that will be the case, as uh, Jordan Bianchi's article detailed, uh, for both Stenhouse and Busher. Which kind of begs the question, I mean, why not make the swap now? I don't know if I know the exact answer, David. What, what do you think? Is there, would it behoove them to do that now and make the swap or do you finish the season out? That's a fantastic question. My, my assumption would be that contracts are keeping this from becoming a reality, but there has to be a new understanding here, right? Uh, if I were Ernie Cope for JTG, or Kevin Kidd for Roush Fenway, I probably have already thought about a swap and maybe have inquired about it because the rules aren't changing much in 2020. No. Yeah. I, I think, okay. Yeah. I think I might want my new drivers input yeah, as soon as possible then. This should definitely occur. Uh, so, okay. So money or sponsorship commitment is the only thing that could stand in the way here. But it seems like those can be altered if all parties are willing and knowing what we know about how drivers interact with teams that they know that they're leaving. Yeah, now now I just want this to happen because it's just the thing that makes the most sense. Well, you and I will both be in Martinsville. We can corner all the players and uh, get our answers and see what we can do. We'll see, we'll see what true. we can do. Speaking of Martinsville, that's where we'll be this weekend for the new round of the Cup Series playoff. And the trucks will be up there as well. But as we always do, let's preview Martinsville because it will be. An awesome race. I just have a feeling, David, because it, the, the intensity of the playoff in Martinsville in general, then you had the night race. It's just been pretty awesome over the last few years because what we know of winning, winning is the ultimate golden ticket. Winning on Mar winning in Martinsville puts you at Homestead. I mean, what a feeling that must be just to have that relative feeling of safety and guarantee yourself a 25% shot at a title. That's what winning Martinsville means. So let's break it down. Let's preview it. Uh, I think in the fall, Brad Kozlowski led 466 laps or something like that. I mean, it was nuts what he did up there. Uh, he's out of the playoff now. But Martinsville, short track, a lot of cautions, sometimes maybe toward the end. But it's a 500-lap race, David. We see some long runs sometimes. And at other tracks, just like we were talking before, Kansas with short run speed, long run speed. Is that a notion that we see at Martinsville in terms of you know long run cars and short run cars? Is that even a thing? So the longest run in a Martinsville race dating back to 2017 was 122 laps. That is a scooch over 64 miles. That isn't even 
a fuel run. <laughs> this is a track where short run speed is just speed. If you're fast initially, and especially if you have a good track position, you're going to be difficult to catch. That's how Keselowski stomped the field in the spring. He was that much faster. And once he took the lead, the race was pretty much over. On one of our beta episodes last year, Alan, I hope you remember this, we talked about Joey Logano bumping and running on Martin Truex at Martinsville. Some fans thought it was a dirty move. Truex, no surprise, thought it was dirty. We saw nothing inherently wrong with it. Logano did not wreck Truex, and he won the race. It was a pretty savvy move, albeit a polarizing one. But it was also out of necessity because if every car is set up close to the same, you're, you're going to want to focus on the short runs here, just the same goal in mind, it's going to be tough for everybody to pass. And this was the de facto pass for the win. A pass here for the lead is likely going to have contact because the corners are tight and the setups are similar. I wish there was more room for setup creativity. I wish there was more room for strategy creativity. I'm not a fan of this track for all of those reasons. What? However, I'm a proponent of winning by any means necessary. Amen. And due to a lack of things needed to make this a more traditional race. The traditional methods of winning are really no good here. And like it or not, the best, most likely method is bumping. Can't argue with that. It's a short track. Short runs, short track. That's all all I could ever ask for. We'll get to that later when we, when we talk about what we want to see on Sunday. But uh, some we always talk about restarts. Again, uh, you know, sometimes maybe, we're, maybe I'm assuming too much, but, you know, Homestead, I mean, Homestead, Martinsville, uh, I think of the inside lane. I just think of years of seeing, you know, my guy like Rusty Wallace, uh, if he ever got on the outside, you just get railroaded to the back. Uh, so the outside, I, I just think of evil at Martinsville. Is that indeed the case? Tell us the numbers. Maybe you'll surprise us. But in terms of restarts, where do you want to be for a restart at Martinsville? There's going to be some talking head with a microphone. It might be you or <laughs> someone on Twitter who doesn't, do even cursory research that will argue that the inside line is dominant. And that's not true now. It hasn't been true for the last five years. I'm going to tell you this right now. There isn't much to be gained at all on Martinsville restarts. The grooves are relatively even. I liked the inside for the front two rows in the spring race. A lot of that was dependent on the leader, which in seven out of eight attempts was Brad Keselowski dictating the restart. But from rows uh, three on back, give me the outside in terms of retention. Alan, we're talking 77% to 63% as the difference, the outside better than the inside. Those in the first seven rows of the preferred groove earned a net total of four spots. That's all. Hmm. The non-preferred groove lost just 13 spots. The hard breathing by some over Martinsville restarts is much ado about nothing. Not a lot to be gained or lost. Not all that stressful this weekend. Stress comes elsewhere. Uh, restarts, not so much. It's hard to take the emotion out of this, David, because I want to just say, you must be crazy, but I'm going to try to watch on Sunday with some level of level-headedness and try to assume every time the green flag drops that I'm not just going to be staring at the outside and being like, what's happening? What's happening? So I'm going to re-listen and I'm going to try to absorb the information and and believe you, okay? I promise you that. Is it deal? 
Uh, deal. I think there will be a lot of people panicking over restarts, but just not a lot of, not a lot of action. Like the, a dramatic loss might be a spot. Like that's, that's really all we're going to be talking about. And it kind of evens out in the end. I don't see that being as bad as the narrative will dictate. All right. Well, one spot could mean a lot because remember we are in the playoffs. So let's think about the playoff eight. The eight, the eight drivers still in there. Can anyone afford to have a bad day? Because at least if it's going to happen in Martinsville, it's the first race of the round. Um, you know, can anyone afford say 30th on back points? I, I, I kind of think so. If you're Kyle, Kyle Bush, Denny Hamlin or Martin Truex, I think you can have a bad day because you still have the ability to win at Texas. You still have the ability to go win at Phoenix. Uh, David, interesting fact, split the field in half, split the field of eight and half. Truex, Larson, Blaney, and Chase Elliott have never won at any of the three tracks we're about to go to. Denny Hamlin, Kyle Busch, Kevin Harvick, and Joey Logano have all won at all three of those tracks. A really odd disparity between, you know, within those eight right there. But I still think Truex would be okay if he had a bad Martinsville. And I think a guy like Denny Hamlin and Kyle Busch, like I just told you, they've won plenty at Texas, at Phoenix. So if they have bad Martinsvilles, I think they could be okay. The rest of the field, I'm not so sure. This is a really strong field of eight playoff drivers. And I need to just kind of retroactively just go back and look at past playoffs and see if the final eight were as strong as this one. But I'm of the mind that there is very little room for error. I I would submit that Kyle Larson could have an adequate run at Martinsville. And when I say adequate, maybe one stage point earned across the two stages and an eighth or a 10th place finish that that would almost be a win for him. The, The bar for adequate is higher for final eight in the playoffs, but that performance would be, it would be good for him relative to his past production on the track. I'm also a little more optimistic about his chances at Texas and Phoenix, as the goose egg you mentioned suggests. Uh, Phoenix, Allen, was the host to Kyle Larson's best passing performance, a surplus value of over plus 4% during what was otherwise a very poor start to the season in regards to passing and production for young Mr. Larson. Uh, now that his passing efficiency has picked up to something more in line with what we expect of him, I wrote about this recently for The Athletic, I don't doubt that he's capable of a huge day in Phoenix. So he might be the guy that can get away with a Martinsville showing that isn't what we'd refer to as good, right? I mean, I... I there might honestly a non-playoff driver can win this thing where we that that's easy to forget because these guys are so good but brad keselowski was the guy that kicked everyone's ass in the spring and he's back and i i don't know there there could be something to prove there if anyone is going to be able to get away with a mediocre day it's probably kyle larson and you have to rebound even if he did, but that's an interesting choice. I didn't, didn't think of it in that way. Uh, something we always end with. What do we want to see, David? What do you, I'll let you go first. What do you want to see Sunday in Martinsville? Uh, I actually had down a good passing performance. I think I've just, based on the last thing I said, I've changed my mind. I want to say a non-playoff <laughs> driver win this race. What? Just That'd be because chaotic. of, come on. What? 
look, you, you, you come on this podcast every week and you say that you want chaos. And when I, when I infer that I want chaos, you give me flack for it. No, 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 no. I, I want, I want the world to burn, to borrow your term, to borrow Heath Ledger's term. Um, I know I want to see a non-playoff driver win this thing. And I want to see a, a harder, more difficult battle in the final two races of this round. How about that? I guess that's not the kind of chaos I want. I just want some beating and banging, not to not to upend the apple cart over here with some outsider coming in and winning. Uh, I don't think that'll happen, by the way. But what I do want to see, uh, I always call for parody. If you are a fan of this podcast, you know this, especially after that first Martinsville race. I mean, I know it was so long ago, but think back to that. 466 laps led by Brad Keselowski. They were still dialing in this new uh, rules package. And remember after the race, they started to, there was, there were arrow issues at Martinsville. This is what teams were talking about after the first Martinsville race, aerodynamic issues and how that was affecting cars at Martinsville. I, I hope it's all figured out and evolved now because I don't want to be talking about any of that. I want four drivers at least with 75 laps led or more. Give me a little parody. And I would like to see Chase Elliott and Ryan Blaney there at the end, like say, you know, the first two rows battling for a win. Only because I think this might be their best shot at Homestead, especially for Blaney, maybe, because he is in the points hole. And if he gets, this is a place where he can win. And if he does win, that gets him into Homestead. If he doesn't win Martinsville, I'm, I just don't know how he points his way in to Homestead without getting that victory. And I think the best chance of victory comes this weekend. And if he's there at the end with the opportunity to take it, I want him to go full Lugano and go and take it. That's what I want to see. The specificity of what you want every <laughs> week is mind-boggling. You Am I are asking too much? <laughs> you are the kind of guy you don't just order a beer. You ask for a pilsner and the glass to be chilled and for <laughs> it to be bought brought out five minutes before the appetizer. Like it is uh unreal. But I'm I'm actually all for it. I I would not mind seeing a, a race full of parody. Uh, if only it would be a world's difference than what we saw in the spring, and I'm okay with that. Amen to that. So we'll see. We'll check back in, as always, after Martinsville. And we'll end this episode with the Positive Regression Scouting Network. David, who do we have? Who is getting scouted on this week? Robert Cole is scouting Chandler Smith, 17-year-old ARCA driver from Talking Rock, Georgia. Robert writes... Chandler Smith's second ARCA season is over. With dark clouds overhead at Lucas Oil Raceway in Indianapolis, Smith passed teammate Christian Eckes just two laps before the drizzles turned to a downpour and captured his series-leading fifth checkered flag this season. The win effectively clinched the owner's championship for his number 20 Venturini Motorsports team with one race remaining and ended his year with an astonishing win rate of over 45% and 11 starts. His year in NASCAR is not over, though, as he will make one final start in the Gander Outdoors Truck Series race at ISM Raceway next month. His three previous Truck Series starts yielded finishes of 8th at Iowa, 4th at Gateway, and 2nd at Bristol. And since you two at Positive Regression love numerical trends, can either of you determine the fourth number in the sequence that starts with 8, 4, and 2? Boom. I mean, I'm genius. So it's one, right? <laughs> Unless it's a five number sequence and then it goes four, eight. 
Oh, well, why well, you got to be, why well, you got to ruin Yeah, I know, no, I know what you're saying, but, 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 um, look, all said, Chandler Smith, just flat out impressive. Um, at some point in January, uh, I'm going to hunker down and write my list of top prospects. And that is a massive undertaking. I have a hunch Chandler Smith is going to give me a lot to think about, uh, when it comes to the top spot on that list. Uh, I think that's, that's where we're at now with him. Nothing, nothing he does surprises me now. Yeah, look, this is, I know it's going to sound funny, but I love this podcast because I went from not knowing who the hell Chandler Smith was until David Smith introduced me to this young 16 year old, uh, just his name and told me about him. And to now seeing him in the truck series, doing one of my favorite interviews of the year, coining the word dude, uh, Chandler, the dude Smith, go back and watch that interview from the rain delay in Iowa. Uh, to me, just enjoying the progress and watching him progress throughout the season only because, uh, I learned about him through and was told, David, you told me to keep an eye on this one. And, uh, it's been fun to see that play out on the track. And now we have Robert Cole really uh, doing a, a good scouting report for us on Mr. Chandler Smith. I was kind of disappointed uh, that Chandler is not in the truck at Martinsville this weekend, but he does have one more start, as you said, in the truck series. So the future remains bright, even though he's only 17 years old and can't race the big tracks quite next year. We'll see what he can do. Uh, indeed. And uh, if anyone out there is interested in joining the Positive Regression Scouting Network, please go to scout.motorsportsanalytics.com. You can request a driver. We can deliver one for you. We want to hear your scouting reports. We want to hear from you. Good stuff. Good episode of Positive Aggression, episode 40. Don't forget, we are available on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, Podbean, and Luminary. Wherever you listen to your podcast, we are available. If you like what you're hearing, please leave us a rating or a review. I know we ask that a lot, but it really does help us. We're seeing ourselves move up the charts a little bit, and that means people are paying attention. They're learning more. Tell all your friends because we know you're getting smarter. You ask us good questions. We try to give you good answers. So tell people about this podcast. We promise it will continue to help you. Uh, your help in spreading the word. Just so appreciated. If you have questions, you know we love to answer them. So reach out on Twitter at PosRegPod, P-O-S-R-E-G-P-O-D. David, you're always working hard. What are you working on? What am I working on? I'm working uh, this week on The Athletic. Uh, the writing staff is gathering around for another round table, this time for round three of the playoffs. And also I will go into more detail on how Ricky Stenhouse might work for JTG Doherty Racing. There is some good to Stenhouse. I point that out uh, in an article that we'll post uh, later this week, and I will outline what to expect from this team in 2020. And uh, this weekend, I'll I'll be at Martinsville Friday and uh, Saturday taking in some truck series race action. Alan, I, I believe you might be there as well. Yes, I will be down there on pit road. The trucks are back. It is playoff race number two in their round. At Talladega was the first uh, race in their round. Now we're moving on to Martinsville. Uh, make sure if you're listening to this on Thursday morning, you are a subscriber, which is awesome. So watch Race Hub tonight because I'll be interviewing Ryan Blaney at the shop at Team Penske as he tries to continue his playoff run for the next three races, see what he can do to make it into Homestead. Also, check my Twitter account because I talked to Brett Moffitt this week, who extended his Truck Series point lead in uh, Talladega. It now goes to a short track where he is pretty damn good, making trying to think about Homestead and not think too far ahead. And what else we got? Oh, on Thursday's edition of Race Hub, uh, if you're, again, if you're watching tonight, it's the final edition of What's in a Number? 
for this year. The number 21. A lot of winning and a lot of uh, famous drivers have driven the number 21. So watch out for that and check out my Twitter feed for all those stories. And make sure you watch the truck race on Saturday, race day on FS1, on Sunday before the big Martinsville race. It's going to be a good time. Uh, So we appreciate it. And uh, for David Smith, I'm Alan Kavana. Thank you for listening to Positive Regression. Have a great weekend, everybody. Rose Davis, historian and co-host of the sports podcast, Burn It All Down. And now I'm hosting the new season of American Prodigy, all about Black girls in gymnastics. For the last 40 years, Black gymnasts have moved from the margins to the core of the sport and changed gymnastics along the way. Now, they tell their stories. You'll meet trailblazers like Diane Durham, superstars like Jordan Childs, and everyone in between. Listen to American Prodigies on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts.